0: program made possible by like you. welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. from the golden age to present day we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Organize that music. It's a favorite of our guest today. Now you might say he's a competitor of this program, but you'd be wrong. He's, let's face it, he's the undisputed king of podcasters on film music. He's had a radio show slash podcast on film music since 1996. Now he's based in Canada, where he's a successful cinematographer and sound editor. He produces content from uh, uh, for corporate projects to commercials to documentaries. But he's truly an expert when it comes to film music, so I'm really honored to have him join us today. So I hope all of you will please join me in
1: welcoming Eric Woods to the program. Hi, Eric. Hi, and the honor is all mine. So I, I can't wait to uh, to dive into this.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with your program. If they aren't, they should be, and we'll uh, we'll talk about that as we as we wrap things up, so they can make sure that they can listen to it. Um, as is our uh, tradition, we like to find out a little bit about the individual the, uh, the personality if you will, behind the, the individual we're talking to. So I was kind of curious if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself not not any of the film music stuff or, or your profession, but just a little bit about your you know family background growing up and you know schooling things of that nature.
1: Yeah, so I was uh, born in Toronto, Ontario and I spent the majority of my elementary school years. Uh, there and then we eventually got up and moved to uh well it was a small town when we moved there it was called Ajax it's now like it's a huge town just uh b- about an hour east of Toronto we spent um a-, a year there didn't really like it and so we headed back to Hamilton which um is my my dad's hometown it's where he grew up and mm-hmm. so I spent about uh you know grade seven till my mid-twenties living in Hamilton mm-hmm. and. Uh, I consider that my hometown. I loved Toronto. I did when I was a kid. It was a spectacular place to be at a young age. And, I mean, I'm a huge hockey fan and baseball fan, so my Toronto Maple Leafs were in Toronto. My Toronto Blue Jays were there. And so any chance I got to go downtown with my dad to go to a baseball game or a hockey game, it was truly a great event, and I I loved the city. And so we moved to Hamilton, which is kind of... um, just in the middle of everything. I mean, we're about an hour away from the U S border and Niagara falls or an hour away from, from Toronto. We're a couple hours away from cottage country. So it's kind of like this little hub where you can get to anything within a couple of hours. Um, it's the city of waterfalls. There are thousands of waterfalls within the city and huh. um, you know, it's a, it's a blue collar town. It's a steel town. And so, I mean, you guess you can compare it to, to maybe Pittsburgh, um, okay. Not the same size, but it was a steel town. Um, Stelco and DeFasco were there. So, um, But my dad was not into the steel industry. Um, he got into the printing industry. He was a graphic designer, but then got more into the estimating side. My mom, uh, a stay-at-home wife, so she raised uh, myself and my brother and sister. And so... Yeah. Then, you know, uh, eventually, you know, I moved out, moved back to Toronto cause that's where work was. And I, I moved there with my, my wife. And then eventually we decided that we wanted to start a family and we wanted to start a family back home in Hamilton. We want to be close to family. And so that's where we, uh, we, you know, we had our two kids, uh, Liam and Charlotte, And then eventually, um, you know, we moved to Kitchener, Ontario, which is where we are now, to be closer to work. Um, I found a job here in Kitchener. My wife found a job in Kitchener as well. So we're closer to work. And we're in a wonderful neighborhood, a wonderful town. The the kids love it. So um, we really enjoy this town. Again, it's sort of... um, in the middle of just about anything and anywhere you want to go. We're still a little further from the U S border than what we like in Niagara Falls. It was a place that we really, really love to go. Um, but besides that, it's a, it's a, it's a nice town. You can get across town about 15 minutes and and see just about anything and, and everything. There's, You know, great bars, great breweries. I I love craft beer. Um, There's wonderful parks. There's a great junior hockey team here at Kitchener Rangers that has a long uh, tradition and history. They've been around since the 1960s. Uh, One of the biggest Oktoberfests in the country is here as uh, a town full of German immigrants. It was actually called Berlin at Ah. one point. So uh, then they, of course, changed the name to Kitchener after World War II. Uh, so yeah, it's, um, you know, I've, I've led an interesting life and, and I'm in the video industry and so I, I enjoy what I do and, uh, and yeah, I've been doing that for about 25 years and, you know, every on and off at different companies and doing different jobs from corporate work to commercials, to documentaries. Um, I was also a, an amateur filmmaker in my early twenties. We went a couple of film festivals. It was something I really wanted to get into. I wanted oh, to be excellent. a director. But um, that just didn't really work out, so I just kind of learned on the go, learned on the job. I, I really didn't go to school for this. I went to school for broadcast journalism at Mohawk College in Hamilton. Oh, okay. And and then I realized that really wasn't for me um, because I think it was in my second. No, it was my first year. One of the the sportscasters from the local Hamilton. Uh, a television station came in and gave a speech, and and he said, "Well, anybody that has dreams about doing something big in you know broadcast journalism right away, well, I'm going to tell you something. You're first going to have to you know do the weather and." In- in uh, northern ontario for about eight years before you get a crack at doing it. and i'm like well okay I, I i i'm not set up to do this i i cannot do that so i went behind the camera instead of in front of the camera i was actually really good in front of the camera but i i enjoyed shooting video when i was a teenager i liked making movies and i thought that's what i wanted to do um so i eventually found a job right out of college uh working for a uh a uh, a company in Toronto in their, uh, corporate video division. And I basically just learned everything that I know, uh, in, in video and film on the job. And oh, excellent. I do now.
0: Yeah. And I, and I, and I, I, I went to Toronto a couple of times. I found it to be a delightful city, really very mm-hmm. cosmopolitan and yeah, wonderful. And I, and I've, I had, had, uh, I'm trying to think how, are you anywhere close
1: to uh, Ottawa at all? Ottawa is about like a, a six hour drive. Oh, wow. Okay. East. Yeah. And I've been to Ottawa, um, which is a which is a fine town. Um I loved but, I uh, loved that city. I thought it was really neat. I went in during the winter too, but it was it was just, yeah. just really special place. Really cold in Ottawa in the winter. Oh yes. Very, very, cold, yeah. So um yeah, but Toronto just kind of I, I outgrew it. Um I, I, I used to like the spectacle and the busyness of it and now I'm kind of slowing down a bit in my mid forties and I just kinda wanna live out in the country <laughs> one of these days. <laughs> I mean I'm still I'm still in a a sizable town, but I think one of these days we're just going to, I mean, we bought a house actually in, in Newfoundland for a very, very, very oh, dirt cool. cheap price. Okay, and yeah. I think that's where we're eventually going to spend, you know, the remainder of our days, 15, 20 years from now. So that we're, you know, we're, we're kind of moving away from the, the, uh, the metropolitan area and we want sure. to move somewhere small and yeah. And be oh on That's great. Oh yeah. Yeah. What a beautiful part of the world. That is a new. Oh, it is. Um, Absolutely.
0: Let's, um, Let's go ahead and dive into some of the cues that you chose because I love sure. some of the choices. I uh, many of which I'm not familiar with, so, so I always enjoy that. Uh, the first one is by composer Christopher Young. It's uh, from the film called Shipping News, and, and this is the main theme from it. Tell us a little bit about uh, why you wanted to choose that amongst your favorites.
1: Well, yeah, it's interesting. We're talking about uh, uh, Newfoundland, and uh, so this film takes place in Newfoundland, oh, right. and. And, and Newfoundland is, it's actually our last province, the last one to, to join the country. It's our 10th and last. It didn't join until 1949. Oh, wow. Um, and it's one of the, I think it's one of the greatest places on earth with some of the kindest people you will ever meet. And I mean, if you get a chance to watch the, the Broadway show come from away, um, okay. and that, it's about the uh, the week following September 11th, uh, the September 11th attacks, and it tells the story of um, you know when the planes were ordered to land out in Gander, Newfoundland, and uh, and how the the local people welcomed um, the, the people off the plane and, and, and invited them into their homes and and you know kept them safe while all this was happening around the world. Oh, wow. It's a really fabulous um piece of canadiana this um this show and i I, i'm pretty sure it's on some of the streaming services and if you get a chance to watch it it is an absolute delight so and and the um, name again is because i want to remember this yeah come from away okay yeah i've seen it i've seen it twice and it is just fabulous it's absolutely fabulous it makes me laugh it makes me cry it's uh It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful show and you'll just instantly get transported uh, to Newfoundland uh, when you, when you see it. So, um, yeah, and, 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 and why this track is also so very key is that my wife is from Newfoundland. Uh, We met there almost 30 years ago uh, during an exchange trip. Uh, I was 16, she was 14 and we just happened to met and we fell in love instantly and, you know, eventually got married and, and, wow. and had a family. So yeah, we've known each other for, yeah, like I said, like I said, 30 years. Um, we've been married since 2002. And so the thing about the shipping news, again, it's, it's a very, um, uh, well, the piece is a very personal piece. The film is, is very personal. It's not a great movie, but it's just great to see Newfoundland on the, on the big screen and in, in, in a, in a kind of a bigger picture than, uh, like an independent film and, you know, having visit, visited the, the province many times, uh, you know, since I've, I've met Janet, um, I can say with confidence that the music that Christopher Young wrote is Newfoundland. And mm. I would no doubt say that if Newfoundlanders had a choice they would probably vote this as the provincial anthem it just <laughs> sings newfoundland now christopher young i mean he's basically known for his horror work i mean if you know hellraiser 1 and 2 drag me to hell sinister i mean that's what christopher known is basically known for the general public know him as that but he's yeah. also a wonderful wonderful dramatist um along with uh like murder in the first you know the shipping news is i think one of christopher young's uh, defining dramatic efforts now he's not and canadian is he by any he's not canadian at all no not at all wow. absolutely not and so what he had to do was essentially tap into the the celtic traditions and the celtic instrumentation okay. which newfoundland is known for because newfoundland back in the the 16th 17th to 18th century was a home for irish migrants Huh. And so what they bring from Ireland over is all their traditions and, and music and and whatnot. And that's what Newfoundland essentially is. That's their music. It's, it's Celtic. And so anything that you would hear in Ireland, you're going to hear in Newfoundland. So it's, you know, penny whistles and, and fiddles and, and, and drums. And it all just sounds like it comes from from Ireland, but it's also distinctly uh, Newfie. And so, but what, Chris, what Christopher Young does with this piece is not only is it full of these distinct Celtic instrumentations, but it also has a just a brilliantly orchestrated symphony orchestra behind it all. And what's so great about this piece is that it just it comes to this wonderful, spectacular climax at about maybe the three minute mark of the piece, where the high strings just grab the the main theme which has been played for the past couple of minutes along with the lower strings keeping the rhythm and it just moves everything along there's penny whistles going wild it just sends shivers down my spine every uh-huh single time. So what I think this piece does so perfectly is that it captures the warmth and the kindness of the people from Newfoundland, but also the vast expanse of the land. He does it so perfectly. And if you've ever been to Newfoundland, all you need to do is close your eyes, listen to this piece of music, and be transported there instantly.
0: Oh, wow. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait to hear this. This is terrific. Um, this will be the first cue that uh, Eric has chosen. It's from the film called Shipping News. It's the title uh, main theme from that film and it's written by composer Christopher Young So, I mean, you kind of alluded to it a little bit, but I, I, I'd like to explore it just a little bit more. What was it that got you interested in in uh, video production? What was it that, you, it's, you know, you said you kind of like being in front of the camera, and then you gave some reasons why you decided to give that up. But, I mean, just talk to me a little bit about what it was that uh, got you interested in doing videos and, and production of videos.
1: I've always liked movies, and I always wanted to make movies when I was a, a kid. And so my grandfather gave me his video camera when I was a teenager. And wow. so, you know, I'd play around with that often and try to make stop motion videos, or I would do, you know, various things in my room with my GI Joes and and try to make little movies. And, and so I thought that was something that I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to go about doing it. And it wasn't until uh, grade 11. Actually, that's not true. It was grade 10 and I'm in grade 10, my high school. And what happens is that we go through uh, the tour of the school and there was a whole area of the school that I had never been to. And they take us to this room, which is the electrical room where, you know, you learn electronics and out in the back, they had built a television studio with two edit bays, computers, a whole production, everything, everything that you could ever want to learn. Uh, filmmaking or television, it was there. And when I saw that, I'm like, this. This is for me. This is where I need to be. So I took every single, it was called communications. So I took every single communications class I could from grade 11 to 13. And at that time we did have a grade 13 and I learned as much as I could there. But at that point I was doing a lot of on camera stuff as well for, um, you know, other student projects, um, when they needed somebody on camera and people said, Hey, you know, you have a good voice, you have a good presence in front of the camera. So maybe you should think about taking, you know, journalism. And I thought, okay, great. Um, that's what I will do. And, you know, I was, I was good at it, but I knew that I was never going to be, you know, the, the, the major play-by-play guy for hockey night in Canada. I mean, that was my goal. I wanted to, I wanted to be Bob Cole, who was our yeah. you know big uh, hockey announcer here in, in Canada. And, okay. and you know, it, it's next to impossible. It's like trying to make the NHL, but it even, even harder. So um, I, I thought I've got to do something else. And I, and I remember I, I enjoyed working with, with cameras. And at that time I was making, you know, movies with, um, you know, students from my high school. So I had made four movies, two of them won awards at these um, amateur and, and no uh, to low budget um, film festivals. Okay. And I thought I'm pr- I'm pretty good at this, but I, I failed to get into the major film school here in Ontario. Uh, and the way they went through a rigorous process. Um, and I just, I didn't have what it, I, I didn't have actually a demo reel at that time to to show them what I could do. And so that's why I went off and made my own little movies. And so uh, while I was doing that, I also had a job at, um, at Hudson's Bay company doing their corporate videos. And so, like I said, I was learning on the job, but then it came time to apply back to Sheridan college. And by that time I had, um, um, uh, rekindled my relationship with my well she was my girlfriend at the time janet and who i eventually married and i realized that if i had to go back to school i'd have to you know either move back home or do something uh-huh. else and i'm trying to get things going with with my wife or my future wife and so i decided you know what i'm learning on the job they're paying me to do this so screw film school. I'm not going to do that. And I'm just going to, you know, I'm still get to play with video cameras and edit stuff. And, and that's, and that's fine. And I made my movies, I made my action adventure movie and I was very happy with that. And so I felt like I already did that. And, and, but I, I enjoy working with cameras and I, but I, I think my, my passion is editing. I love editing and I also love, uh, sound mixing. It's just a, it's a wonderful experience. And if I could do it all over again, I'd go back to school to do that. I'd be a sound designer and sound mixer.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, and I'm, I'm very, uh, how do I say this? I, 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 am very basic elementary level. I, you know, I understand video editing and sound and that sort of thing. I'm I'm not that great at it, but I can see what you're, I understand what you're saying. It can, it's a highly creative, uh, potentially as a highly creative process that can really yes. change, uh, uh, the perception of what someone is watching, just, just by, you know, the edits that you make and it's, a uh, yeah. And I, I had fun with it. I've, I've done a couple of things, you know, family travel videos and those sorts of things where I had fun doing that sort of stuff. And so I, yeah, I,
1: I hear you. I understand. Yeah. I think it was when I was working on my, you know, my amateur films that, uh, you know, I'd have an edit and I'm like, this isn't really working. Or, but it's like I think this is all we got, and this is all I can do. Let's see what happens when I start adding sound effects, and then start adding music, and that's when the magic happens. Oh, yeah! And, and that's where I fell in love with it. I'm like, wow, look at what—I mean, it was—it was putting these sounds to the images that I created, which I thought was incredibly fascinating. And so, my film finally came to life. And now I understand why so many filmmakers absolutely love the film scoring process, or going to a recording session and saying this is the best part of of making a movie. And so, but now I'm, I'm taking, you know, animations that are done by, you know, the animation division of the the company that I'm worth and, 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 you know, there's no sound, there's no music, there's no nothing. And I'm creating character sounds. I'm, I'm creating new sounds. I'm adding music to it. So I'm, I'm bringing those drawings to life essentially with the sound. And that is so fulfilling. It's so I'm incredible. I, 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 when I get those projects, I, I look forward to it and I, I can't stop. I just start and I, and I, <laughs> I could keep going for hours and hours and days if I could just to get it right. And, it's like, and you I, forget
0: what time of day, what time of day it is or whether it's yeah, time to exactly. go to sleep or something. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You just lose time for sure.
0: I understand. I understand. Um, another cue you chose is a, is a favorite of mine. A really unusual score. Uh, because it's the heavy use of electronics, but it, Gosh, it works just beautifully, still does. Uh, I'm talking about the film called Blade Runner, and I'm talking about the original one, which is, and it's kind of funny, too, what was it, like 1982, and it was predicting life in 2019, I think, or
1: something That's like right. that, right? That's
0: right, yep. <laughs> it missed it by a few years, I think. But yeah, it, it did, yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but you've chosen the uh, the main titles from that film, written by the composer Vangelis. Tell us a little bit about your thinking of wanting to include that amongst your list of favorites.
1: Yeah, there's, there's two reasons I wanted to bring this one. I mean, it's my favorite electronic score of all time, and it really is the electronic score that got me into electronic scores and, and made me appreciate them because at the time it was I was um, more favorable or, or, or I knew orchestral scores more so than the electronic score. So I saw Blade Runner annually on local television. It would play every New Year's Eve. So when, yeah, when 12 hit, Blade Runner would, would start. (laughs) And so we'd watch it, I'd watch it yearly. And, and it was just mesmerized by, by the score. And, you know, I owned various copies of, of the album, but you know, it was, it was just littered with, with uh, dialogue over top of the music, which I absolutely hate. And so when I heard about a re-recording of Blade Runner, I thought, how in the world are they going to do this properly? And so this became a very interesting album to listen to. It came from BSX Records and uh, sound engineer Edgar Rothermitch. Now, what he did was deconstructed the score, which was probably one of the most impossible things you could possibly do because wow. Vangelis played this to the movie. And he has a very... Um, Uh, customized set of synthesizers that he uses. So in order to recreate those specific sounds it almost becomes an impossible project. And that's because there's also no written transcription of the score. There are no notes. There's no way of knowing what Vangelis was doing when he was writing or performing the score. So uh, Rothermich listened to the score in the film, listened to uh, some of the albums that were out there, and basically transcribed the score by ear. And so he then Isn't had that amazing. To, it, and it's just it, amazing. It, and that's incredible to me because I've heard other re-recordings done where um I, they've completely just like Kevin Casca, Kevin Casca completely uh, reconstructed the score to Superman for Varese Sarban records, re-recording of that score. And he did that by ear because there were no score parts. Wow. And, but I think it's easier orchestrally than it is for something done synthetically and especially done in sort of a, um, you know, like live to the film. Um, yeah. And so when I finally heard this, I couldn't believe my ears because of how absolutely close it came to sounding like the original soundtrack. And there was no dialogue. The score plays com- complete from start to finish. It is a... Magical listen. It's an album I never thought that I would ever need, but I'm so glad that this is out there <laughs> because it's the only Blade Runner album I listen to and I listen to it constantly. And I have and I love re recordings, I am a huge fan of re recordings. Huh. And this is up there as one of the all time best, in my opinion. It just captures everything that Vangelis put into this score, Um it, it just sounds massive, it still sounds very human, very organic, uh very dynamic, and I think the re-recording of this sort can only have been done in the past couple of years, trying to do this 10, 15, 20 years ago probably would have failed miserably, but with today's technology, I think they knocked this one out of the park, and I highly recommend that if anybody is a fan of Blade Runner, you pick up this album and, and until we get all the original tracks without any dialogue i think this is the definitive release of blade runner wow wow it, 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 I,
0: i'm not going to follow up on it too much cuz we could go on forever on this i'd i'd like to play the the cue but I, that's interesting that you say that cuz i'm i'm usually not a big fan of re-recordings but but you know the way you've presented this to me it's like i i, I this might be the cd i have i don't know if it is or not but I certainly want to hear it now, you know, based on what you're telling us. So let's let's have a listen to this. This is uh, from the film Blade Runner. Uh, the cue is uh, basically the main titles and it's written by composer Vangelis. You seem to have a um, far more than I do uh, an understanding of 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 music and instruments. So you you sound like you have a little bit of an understanding of it. So I mean, are you a musician? Do you you play instruments or or, or having you know read music or anything like that?
1: I did play um, from like grade seven till my last days of uh, high school. Uh, I played the saxophone. I was quite good at it. Um, then I transferred over to percussion when our percussionist, uh, wasn't in our class anymore and they needed somebody to play the drums. I'm like, yes, I will play (laughs) the drums. So uh, I learned how to play drums and and timpani and I never really learned the bells, but, um, but yeah, I I can, I can read music. And one of the best things about being in a high school band is that uh, half the pieces that we played were film music. And that was exciting. Yeah, it was really exciting to to get um, you know to see to to perform stuff like the Raiders March and the Imperial March and Robin Hood Thieves and and various other things that came out around that time. I mean, we played Jurassic Park to death even during Christmas concerts. That was one of our that was one of our highlights. Jurassic (laughs) Park all the time. Um, Okay, now I gotta
0: ask you. I mean, and I've asked several of my guests this. Did you ever feel as a youngster like that? As a teenager, you ever feel like an outsider that? or a geek that I like this film music stuff. I mean, were you made to feel that way or did, or no, it
1: was okay. No. And, and I wasn't. And I, and I, I made sure I didn't feel that way. I, for, for some reason, for somebody who isn't very confident now, um, I was actually extremely confident in high school. And that was because, you know, my dad just said, you know, keep your nose out of trouble and it be <laughs> strong. And I wasn't very big. I mean, I'm six, two now, like over 200, 50 pounds. I'm a big guy, but when I was in Greeno, grade nine and 10, I was a, you know, a skinny, you know, 140 pounds soaking wet kid mm. who, uh, was just, I mean, looked like an absolute dork. But, um, <laughs> when I, but I was in music class and the best thing about, you know, music class is you're in there with everybody who wants to play music and appreciates your music and, and appreciates what you like in music. So we all, we, we played all sorts of music and, and, and we listened to all sorts of music. And But I can remember, um, you know, when I finally discovered soundtracks and finding them in the library and being able to copy them to my cassette player. And I would listen to uh, film music during lunchtime and or if I was mm. doing homework or whatever. And people would come by and go, what are you listening to? And I'm like, well, I'm listening to, to this. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's the Empire Strikes Back. And they'd grab my headphones and they'd listen to it <laughs> because they'd never heard it before. and and Or they never had a chance to. And so I was always there more to help people learn about film music and so if they're like hey what is this I'm like hey you might like this this is from this movie and they're like oh yeah really and anytime I'd watch um, you know a film um, I would talk about the music I would try to guess who the composers were because again at that time I didn't really know the names but I was familiar right. with certain sounds so uh, a friend of mine, we used to guess all the time. We're like, who is that? And we, you know, Legends of the Fall came on and we had no idea. But I'm like, we I think it sounds like James Horner. We wouldn't really know, but then you know, we see the credits at the end and we're like, Yes, it's James Horner. <laughs> so um yeah, I never really felt like a an outsider. I never really felt like a like, oh, this is something you shouldn't do because you're you're a nerd. I never felt that way. I always felt accepted by my friends. And, and they accepted what I, I did and still do. and and some of them still listen to my, my podcast and my, and my radio show. So they, they really do appreciate um, kind of what I've brought to them. Yeah, I was just gonna th- I was just thinking too. I mean, gee, surprise,
0: surprise. L- look at what you're doing now. You have a podcast mm-hmm. on film music. and yes, basically have given me the groundwork as to why you why you started to do that. I mean it, it, that started yeah, at a very yeah.
1: early age. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and, wow. and the reason why I wanted to do the pod, well, the radio show in 96 was I, I wanted to get this music out there on the, on the airwaves. There was, there was hardly any film music that I was hearing on the radio, whether it was from Canada or the U.S. I mean, the first yeah. soundtrack show I ever heard was Fort Thaxton soundtrack cinema, but that was all, all the way out in Seattle. And we would have to stream the uh, the show on like terrible real audio back yeah. to Ontario. But when I'm like, Oh my God, there's a guy doing a film music show. I think I could do that. And so that's when my second year of college, when I went to the to the radio station, the college radio station, I said, hey, here's an idea. I want to play film music on on the radio. And this is a way for me to help promote the art form that I love. And that's what I want to do. And that's what I've been doing for over 25 years. I still do it. I want to make sure that people get a chance to hear this music and appreciate this music because it's something that Still to this day, I mean, it's, it's finding its, its audience, but still it's, it's, a, it's a niche thing, yep. and I want more people to to discover it.
0: Yep, yep, yeah, absolutely right. Um, another cue you chose, which is uh, from a film that's a favorite of mine, this is uh, from the film Raiders of the Lost Ark. The cue is called The Map Room, and it's written by composer John Williams. Uh, tell us a little bit about what your thinking was in including that uh,
1: here on today's program. I think anybody that knows me uh, would be disappointed if I didn't play anything from Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> <because> <laughs> it's my, it's my favorite movie of all time. It's my favorite score of all time. Um, but I didn't want to play just any old cue. Like you know, everybody's heard the Raiders March a million times over. It's still mm-hmm. like one of the greatest things I've ever heard. But oh yeah, uh, but you know, this is a, it's an incredible, an incredibly personal film to me. Uh, it was one of the very first movies I ever saw. Um, I, I connect this with to my mother um all the time because i was i was seven eight years old i was sick home from school on a monday and i you know i wasn't really feeling well and my mom came to me and she says hey i think i have something that might make you feel better now at that time you know it's the 80s uh you know, we'd have to go out and rent a, a beta machine or a VHS machine in order to right. watch movies, and we would rent one and a couple of movies uh, during during the weekend. And um, I, I didn't know Raiders of the Lost Ark was one of the movies that they they rented. But so my mom, you know, seeing that I'm not feeling well, she's like, "Hey, come on down. I think this might make you feel better." So we went down to the basement, sat there, turned this movie on, and I was wow. just blown away.
0: Blown away. <laughs> wow! I
1: can imagine. I, I, couldn't believe what i was seeing i was like what is it just felt so it felt so adult to me you know i'm so used to you know watching you know kids movies and comedies and things of that sort and this one was something else it just exploded off our tiny little screen (laughs) and the music made such an impression that you know this experience stuck with me for forever and i've experienced the film you know hundreds of times and uh it just still is one of the most rewarding things i ever had a chance to to watch and it it took until a couple years ago for me to finally see it on the big screen oh wow it was it was the best experience because i saw it for the first time on the big screen live with the toronto symphony orchestra oh wow one of, the, one of those live in concert shows. yeah yeah, I got yeah to experience it with my son and i wanted to bring my mom badly but um liam my son wanted to go and so i thought you know what a great way to um introduce him to this to this movie and he yeah. saw it when he was very young but he didn't really re- remember much of it and he's seen a couple of uh, symphony concerts with us but this is a time where oh man it was about four years ago when we got to go see it and it was an incredible experience and it was the best way for me to finally see it on the big screen and I I was listening to my favorite score of all time play from start to finish live something I'd never thought I'd ever experience I was hearing things that I'd never heard before and I got to experience this track Map Room Dawn which Mm. has one of the the grand statements of the arc theme uh and with little sprinkles of the medallion theme in there as well but what's so great about this cue as i th- i think it's a it's a film composer's dream it's a scene that is almost devoid of any dialogue and so music plays an incredible um or an important role in the narrative and for these right. 3 minutes you know John Williams has to You know, build on the drama and even the suspense as well, because it's a very time-sensitive thing for Indy to, to find the location of the Ark. And Williams just builds this piece and builds this piece until, again, you have this incredible climax when the sun finally hits the medallion and shows on the map room floor where where the Ark truly is. Indy smiling, and it's just this this huge orchestral choral cue which i think there's a triangle like ringing around in in the background it's just the london symphony has never sounded better and it just again it's 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 an incredibly emotional moment and just even talking about it, it it's just i got goosebumps on my arms right now <laughs> frank i'll tell you I understand arms, my my hair's just standing on end and i think that besides the raiders march or even the desert chase the one of the greatest action cues of all time this might very well be the the best cue written for an indiana jokes it, film
0: and you illustrate i mean it's for people that have had a chance to do this, and I have a couple of times, been able to see a, a, a rough cut of a film where where the score hasn't been put down yet. Yeah, And it's amazing how flat, yes. how flat the movie is without the music. and And that's when you start to appreciate just how important
1: a score is to a film. Well, I was going to say that, can you imagine... You know, Michael Kahn editing this with Steven Spielberg and they've cut this scene together and Spielberg's, yep, that that's it. And like, that's it? I mean, really, <laughs> it is flat. But I'm pretty sure that Spielberg probably turned to Kahn and said, Well, just wait until you hear what Johnny has written for this scene. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure they both looked at each other, nodded, and went on to the next scene because Williams owns this scene and any chance i think that any composer like you know jerry goldsmith for the enterprise you know you get a scene where there's no dialogue and your music gets a chance to soar composers take great advantage of this oh situation. yeah
0: oh yeah i mean it's a and, and i'm always reminded of the, uh, the, the, the there's there's film uh where you can see this where uh, uh where john williams uh, uh, uh spielberg comes over to williams house or whatever and 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 John Williams says, yeah, I've I've got this uh, theme for Jaws. You want to listen to it? Yeah, fine. And he just goes to the piano and goes dun 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 dun, you know. And it's like that's it. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, it is. That's it. But believe me, it's going to work. You know, it's it's a it's, lot of trust, especially yes. back then. You know, you didn't. Especially have back then, you're right. Yeah, and and you you knew that going to the to the recording stages were the first time you're going to hear this thing in full, and you better hope it works. But. You have to trust your composer, and that's why, you know, Williams and Spielberg and Zemeckis mm-hmm. Silvestri all have, you know, great relationships because they trust each other. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, gosh, we've talked about it enough. Let's listen to it. This is uh, from Raiders of the Lost Ark. The cue is called The Map Room, and it's written by the maestro, John Williams. We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar either way if you can join up there will be bonuses like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week where we'll play additional cues as well as ask us some extra questions and it's going to be only available to patrons how do you sign up well it's simple you go to patreon.com slash what's the score and that's all one word that's Patreon, that's P A T R E O N dot com slash what's the score? Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's patreon.com. I've not mentioned it before, but I should point out that bumper music you just heard was written by listener and friend Terry Wallstrom. Thanks, Terry. Since you've been um, talking about film music for so long, and you know, I don't know if you've heard a lot of my programs, but certainly some of my listeners know how I feel about this. I'm just kind of curious. I'm I don't want to ask it with any kind of a prejudice up front. How, if if any, has film music changed over the last 20 or 30 years or has it changed? I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Film music I think is always evolving and it's a good thing. Um, it would just be incredibly flat and dull if it didn't. Um, I mean, you think back in the day when, you know, jazz was introduced to, to film music and, and all these other different types of styles that just makes film music alive. And it's such a great, I mean, I can't say it's a, is a genre, but it, I mean, within film music, you can experience so many different styles of music. And so now for the past, you know, 20, 30 years, you have a lot more, um, technology. Technology is the big thing and that's, what's changing Um, I think the sound and the process of film scoring um, nowadays you don't necessarily have to just be a great composer, but you also have to know everything and anything about computers so that you can set up your samples and synths and whatever to create full mock-ups that sound just as good as a, as a a live performance so that your director is comfortable with what you're writing before you get to the recording stage, because it costs a lot of money to do this. And so uh, the other thing is, you know, you're, you're, Like, I think it's whatever is in is in and whatever's the flavor of the month, that's what's going to, going to hit. So, you know, Hans Zimmer is huge. And so his sound is just all over the place. And, and I, I don't blame him for, for anything that has actually happened because, um, you know, if you, if you want to be creative, you can be, and, and if you're just going to stick with, Hey, I like the sound of inception, let's do that for my movie, that just doesn't work. It doesn't fly with me. I, 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 but what I like is that there are, there's this, this is wide range of musical styles still. And, and and especially with the electronics in the past, you know, 30, 40 years, we're getting some absolutely incredible sounds. Um, what turns me off are, are kind of just like overly aggressive, incredibly loud sounds that sound like sound effects and aren't, in, aren't entirely musical. Um and that just kind of play against the images on the screen, and are really tough to listen to on their own. But I can, but I can appreciate um, stuff like you know, with Dune that just came out. I, I love that because I experienced that music in the film first. I had a great experience with the movie. I had a great experience with the music, so that that interests me. Um, but I also can go to something like you know, Christopher Gordon's uh, Buckley's Chance a wonderful Western score that he wrote, which is just purely symphonic and lyrical and the stuff that I like the stuff that I grew up on. Um, But I mean, I I have to admit that I was biased against uh, Zimmer when he first came in, it was a sound that didn't really tickle me at all. And I I was like, some fans were completely against it. But once I decide that, you know what, that's let's, let's try to open up a bit and and see what I can bring in and what I might be able to enjoy. And, and once I realized, okay, this is a Hans Zimmer, uh, I, mean, I keep going back to Hans Zimmer, but I mean, he's the big guy, right? He's, yeah, he's yeah. basically changed film music, one of the most revolutionary composers of all time. But it's like, once I realize, okay, it's Hans Zimmer, what's he going to bring to the table? So if I expect a big symphonic score coming from Hans Zimmer, then I'm automatically going to be disappointed. So when I hear his name or anybody else's name and I know their style and what they might bring, that's where I'm like, okay, well, what are they going to do within their own uh, creative palette or, or sound or style? so I start, I stop putting so much, um, it's not pressure, but, uh, expectation of what I want to hear, um, in a film. And, and now I start thinking about, okay, well, what's that composer going to give me? And what are that, what's that composer's strengths? And that's what I will look for in a score instead of, uh, coming to it with my own personal bias. If that makes yeah. any sense.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, no, it does. And, and, and unfortunately I have a very strong bias. it's, i i've noticed over i don't know the last 10 15 years at least that that sound effects have become so overwhelming i mean whether it be mm-hmm. explosions or or airplanes or you know whatever that it, it's hard for the music to compete with those sound effects and so it, you're correct so it's like you know the music gets louder and more brash because it's competing with these sound effects and it it just doesn't, it, I, I, you know, I'm an old fogey, uh, guilty as charged. It just doesn't work for me. And that's that's why I was kind
1: of curious. And, and you're not wrong. I mean, the, the they're just pushing the boundaries of sound. And, I mean, now you have Dolby Atmos. You have you know, an infinite amount of speakers that you can use to, to, to convey that sound. But, I mean, I've noticed, I mean, the big one for me was Star Wars. You know, when I first experienced Star Wars, I saw Return of the Jedi. for That was one of my very first movies in the theater. I, I saw that, and when that main theme exploded on the screen, it just mm. blew me away. Oh yeah, huge sound, but the rest of the score was perfectly balanced with the sound effects. Nothing was overly brash, but you know, it all worked together uh, right. in harmony. But now I go and watch the, the 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 sequels that came out, and I hear the main theme or the main title for for The Force Awakens, and I'm expecting just to be Blown out of my seat with all the technology that we have, the the great speakers, the great sound system, and it's the wimpiest thing I've ever heard. They've (laughs) dialed down music in the mix, where as you know, even voices are very quiet and they're pushing everything up to, well, like 11, even 12 now, and it's just becoming so aggressive where music is just getting. Uh, uh you know annihilated in the mix you know another f- film that i watched recently or a couple years ago it was the uh, the godzilla king of monsters uh film which had an enormous score by uh bear McCreary. great lyrical score a wonderful throwback to to the original along with his own themes and he just created this massive massive score and i couldn't wait to see it in the movie and you could barely hear it <laughs> barely hear it and i'm like Mm. i cannot believe it but it's that's what's happening is that I, i don't know why composers write so much music nowadays because it's just gonna get lost and i don't understand why they would even try to do something creative with their orchestration or you know creative with their melody because no one's going to hear it in a big sound effects um heavy uh film these days because sound effects are just you're right they're mixed way too loud to the point where I saw Dunkirk, Dunkirk and I almost left the theater because my ears hurt. Literally wow. my ears hurt. It was just so piercingly loud that I was uncomfortable. And and I can understand, you know, why the film wanted to feel that way, but the sound didn't need to be that loud. It was it, it hurt. It literally hurt and I have never experienced that before and and it's just getting to the point where I think people are going to start losing their hearing because huh. the sound is just way too damn loud. It is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <sighs> You know, Eric, I, I, we won't play any music because I, I can. We can keep going back and forth. There's lots of things I'd like <laughs> to say, but we're gonna we're gonna play another cue right now. Sure. Because like there was another thing I was gonna. Maybe we'll come back to it after well, this we can one. talk about it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, uh, this was interesting. Uh, this cue you chose from a film. I I never would have expected this. This was from a film called. Many people will be familiar with it. Planes, trains, and automobiles. Uh, the cue is called "Power to Believe." And uh, just kind of talk to me a little bit about that, and why you wanted to include that on
1: your uh, list here today. Yeah, this is um, this is an interesting choice because it's not an original score. It's not, it's not the music written for the uh, the film itself. The, the score was actually written by Ira Newborn. He wrote a, a fun score, mm. but this track is, um, I think, one of the best examples of a of a needle drop. I think in the history of of film and I've experienced some great needle drops in Kubrick, Friedkin, Scorsese, Tarantino films that they're all, all great. But, uh, this one is uh, called uh, power to believe by the band, the dream Academy. And this track plays in two major sequences in the movie. And for the first part, um, it only plays for about a minute. And then it comes back uh, during the finale of the film, where it gets a chance to to play for 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 two minutes. And the interesting thing about this track is that it's a it's a it's a regular song. It's called "Power to Believe." There were lyrics written for it. It was released on their album, and it was actually released on the soundtrack. But the instrumental version, which is heard in the film, was not released on the soundtrack. And this track actually stayed unreleased until. I think it was 2014 when it was put on uh, the Dream Academy's Greatest Hits uh, album. So it was the first time we ever got a chance to, to hear this wonderful, wonderful track without the lyrics. Mm. And, you know, it's an interesting story how they they got the the track into the film is, uh, well, they, they already had a relationship with John Hughes on Ferris Bueller's Day Off. They had a couple of uh, songs um, in that film. And then, uh, you know, one of these days uh, – one of the band members was actually called over to uh, 20th century Fox um, and in a tiny little meeting room with John Hughes and uh, they were watching the movie and John Hughes asked if, you know, they had any new tracks that you could maybe sample. And so they played a few tracks and then all of a sudden this played and the quote basically from John Hughes is this, he says, thank you. You've just saved my life. And that's because he needed a piece of music for these two incredibly important and dramatic sequences in the movie. And if you'll allow me, I'm just kind of going to go over what they are and how important the music is to it, because there is a sequence. I think anybody that's known that knows plane trains and automobiles and one of the the first real dramatic uh, scenes is when uh, Steve Martin's character uh, Neil just basically unloads on Dell in the hotel room. He's had enough of him, <laughs> and to the point where you know Neil's just insulting him, hurting him with with every word that he has to say. He just will not stop. It's incessant, and Dell basically stops and just looks at. Uh, Steve Martin's character, and he's just got this look of, of disgust and surprise because he didn't expect this to happen. And this is the, the speech where uh, John Candy's character, uh, Neil says, you know, where he likes himself and his, his wife likes him and, you know, he's the real deal. And while he's saying that this piece of music pops up for, for a minute and just adds an extra layer of, of humanity, to this scene and and you can tell this is it's a hard scene for for both of these players um it's probably one Mm -hmm. of the best dramatic scenes that steve martin and john candy has ever been in it's an extremely well written scene Mm -hmm. especially after what has all come beforehand which is all just you know hijinks and craziness and uh you know as i said it only lasts about a minute but it's just a hard hitting speech and it's real and we finally get a sense of of what these characters are and who they are and so then of course we go through more hijinks throughout the movie and then we finally (laughs) get to the end and this is where uh neil and dell basically part ways at the subway station in chicago and uh you know neil is on the Uh, the subway and we're doing flashbacks to what's happened into the, from the movie. And, you know, we're getting a few laughs, but we're also getting a few lines from Dell about his wife. And that's where Neil realizes that something's wrong. And so Neil turns back around, takes a subway back to the train station and meets Dell there. And where Dell eventually reveals that his wife is actually dead and that he's homeless. Oh, jeez! And so they have this, Again, another incredibly dramatic scene with this music, which now gets a real sense to breathe. Again, another scene where I mean dialogue is playing over top of it, but the 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 music is really in the forefront and yeah. it is just capturing the emotion as if it was actually written for the film itself. But it wasn't. This is just uh-huh. a song that Dream Academy came up with. They stripped away the lyrics and they just threw this into the into the film, but uh-huh. John Hughes is so good at picking music and finding the right places to put music needle drop music. And this one just, I remember watching this and again, sent shivers down my spine. Uh, I was almost in tears watching this and when I finally got a chance to hear this track without the lyrics, it was such a profound experience for me because I've wanted to hear it all my life. And so it was six years ago when I got a chance to to listen to it for the first time uh, on its own. And I was just, I don't know if you've ever had these moments where finally yet, you know, one of your favorite soundtracks or favorite, um, you know, tracks that you've always wanted to hear and finally you do. And you just kind of sit there and you let that all soak in. It's it's an incredible experience. And that's what I felt listening to this and then I've heard the song a million times before and it's just as powerful. Uh, I, and so, yeah, I, I, wanted to give you and your, uh, audience just a great example of what a needle drop cue can do a, a smartly placed needle drop cue, because sometimes songs are just thrown over films all willy nilly and they make sure. no sense. This one made sense and it actually helped save the picture. Well,
0: you, you've sold me. We got to have a listen
1: to this now. So let's
0: uh, let's have a listen to this. This is from the film Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Uh, the the cue is called, and the song is called "Power to Believe," and it's written by a group called Dream Academy. like i need to follow up on something you just said because i I think it's you might have some insight in this that 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 i don't are are there certain directors that you feel that that are out there that really understand film music and and because there's a lot that don't and and i know that the director and the composer a lot of times have to work together and sometimes there's conflict and uh but the director doesn't as my listeners know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of John Barry and John Barry used to have a lot of conflicts with directors and he keeps saying, look, just trust me, this is going to work. And, you know, and, and most of the time they would trust him, but sometimes, you know, they would come to blows, not blows, but I mean, they <laughs> just would never agree. And he'd, he'd say, okay, fine, I'm out. I'm, I'm done. And, uh, I'm just kind of curious. Are there, are there some directors you think out there that are, uh, particularly adept at understanding, The use of music and films, in in addition to John Hughes, who you've already mentioned.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's tough to nail down you know specific directors because, I mean, some are and some aren't. Um, I feel really bad for composers who are put in this situation um, because really they have so so little control over what they do. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they are stuck with the film; they're stuck with a time frame of certain scenes. Um, you know, if they want to expand on a piece of music, but yet they only have 90 seconds to do so, then that's all they are given. It's tough for them to be creative. And it's also very tough for any composer to be creative when a, when a director wants something specific. And especially when you have the dreaded temp track in there, which I mean, the temp track serves a purpose, but when you, when a director falls in love with it, you're, you're, you're in trouble right off the bat because the composer doesn't want that. And I've, read and seen so many composer interviews where they just keep on saying, you know, just stop with the temp track. You know, I understand the guide, but let me go off and do my own thing. The problem is, is, is the word trust, which is what you said. Mm. It's very, very hard for, for a director to trust anybody to take creative control of their movie, because this is the only aspect of the film that they really don't control they can't directors can't write music unless you're you know clint eastwood or a few other right. directors out there that can write music um and so it's it's really hard for for a director to say yeah i'm gonna give you my baby and i'm hoping that you're going to make it better yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 i and i I, I haven't been there, but I can understand it. Like if I had a movie and I had to hand it off to somebody else, I'm like, Oh, please, please. I hope you do what I hope you can do. <laughs> and so, but there are um, directors out there that I think can communicate properly um, what they need from their music. And I think the best thing for, for directors is try not to talk musical to composers. Um, if they can, talk about music and more feelings instead of, you know, uh, uh, certain instruments right. or, or chords or whatever, and try to sound like, you know, music it, that just gets in the way. But, you know, there are directors like, you know, Spielberg, you can tell just absolutely loves hearing music in his movies. And he sets up certain scenes where he allows music, to, music to breathe. Uh, Robert Zemeckis and his relationship with Alan Silvestri. I mean, Silvestri gets incredible mixes, absolutely incredible mixes um, in, in Zemeckis films um, where the score is really part of the experience. Um, you know, JJ Abrams uh, does a, a really good job with, with, with music. Although some of the star Wars, like I said, star Wars movies were, were weirdly mixed, but the stuff he does with the, Michael Giacchino, Um, I think the scores are quite dynamic. A lot of the Pixar movies, anybody who's working on Pixar films, uh, music just – animated movies. I think if you watch animated movies or horror movies, those are the two genres that really embrace music and love music and want the music to come to the forefront. And I think that's why How to Train Your Dragon was such a success or that's why uh, something like – uh, you know, the remake of Evil Dead with Roque Banyos' score. Uh, give that one a go. That Good that, point. That, yeah. that is a, and I forgot the director's name, but he allowed Roque Banos, and I wish I'd played that track. I should have picked it, um, <laughs> to uh, to let the score actually help tell the story because there's a device in the score with a um, an air raid siren that ramps up every time the demon is present in the picture. And the reason Banyos picked that is because he remembers uh, police sirens when he was a kid growing up, and how those scared him. And so he remembered that and used that device in his score. So anytime you hear this ramped up air raid siren in Evil Dead, uh, the remake, it it adds an extra dimension to the score. Huh. And and I think that that's where directors allowing composers to do stuff like that and let them help tell the story with their music. That's where I think you're still in that realm of actually, you know, having fun. And, and I think that's what you have with music, you know, you should be having fun with the music yeah, yeah. and, and I find that some of that's being sucked away in films these days. And it's just kind of, sometimes it's just too dreary and too dense and, and overly orchestrated. And, uh, you don't really get that sense of fun all too often. Although, you know, if, I mean, the best thing for me that I could say for anybody who wants to, you know, find music from, from that long gone era of great symphonic scores. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff coming out in, in Spain and in, in Japan and, you know, out in Europe and, and those places, uh, they really still embrace the, the, the big lyrical or, orchestral score. So, and even some small, small films are, are really embracing that as well. And, uh, and video games, video games is another yeah. man, the music that's being written for video games. is just on a whole other level. And they get to do a lot of really, really interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, in fact, we had a, a a video game composer as a guest here uh, several months ago, and yeah, yeah, I agree. I know what you're saying. Getting back to uh, some of your choices, this is another uh, a, a huge epic film, Empire of the Sun, that you uh, chose. I believe the cue is called Cadillac of the Skies, and we're back to uh, John Williams, I believe, again as the composer. Tell us a little bit about your thinking on wanting to include that amongst your list of favorites.
1: Yeah, I was actually going to. Um Include Field of Dreams at this point, but I think uh, uh-huh. Douglas Lacey already brought that up on our <laughs> <review> episode. <laughs> and so um, I think we all know that. I mean, anybody that's seen Field of Dreams, anybody has a, a wonderful relationship with their their father, or if, right, um, you know, you are a father and have a you know a type of relationship with your with, with your son, then you can understand the feelings that you get. That so, I, what I wanted to do with this track is just basically dedicated to my to my dad, and uh, because this is his favorite movie of all time. And, uh, and so, yeah. And the thing is he, um, yeah, my, my dad's very, very important, uh, to me. He, he came into my life when I was about a a year and a half. Um, he essentially saved my mom and me and, uh, basically took her care of us and, you know, gave me and eventually my my brother and sister, you know, the best life possible. Uh, I, it would have been strange not to have, uh, this man in my life. Um, and the other thing is he, he worked his ass off. He was constantly making ridiculous long commutes every day to and from work. And, um, but he always had time for us. He got me into sports, you know, taught me how to skate, shoot a puck, hit a ball. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um,
1: he taught me how to be a good dad. So he's essentially my hero. I really look up to I him understand. and, you know, I hold him, to a, a almost impossible pedestal. Uh, but if I'm half the dad that he is, then I, I think I've done a good job. So, uh, you know, the, one of the best things that happened recently is that he, uh, he retired, uh, retired at 75 years too late. Um uh, but you know, that was one of my favorite days and it happened recently. And, uh, You know, so I'm glad he's never gonna have to make that stupid long commute again. And so, and I'm just happy that every day is now Saturday for him. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, and we're all happy, honestly, that he's not doing this and he's happy. And I just wanted to dedicate this track uh, to him, like I said, because it's one of his favorite movies. And, And one of the reasons is because he's, he's just a huge fan of World War II. I mean, if he didn't get into the printing industry, he would have been a fantastic history professor. Um uh-huh. he knows World War II inside and out, has this encyclopedic knowledge. He helped me out with a bunch of papers when I was in high school on World War II. And uh actually one of the cool things, and just a little side note if you don't mind, um sure. uh in Hamilton, where where I live most of my life, we have something called the Warplane Heritage Museum. Uh it's a cool complex. It it houses like a whole bunch of incredible historic aircraft, including uh two airworthy Avro Lancaster bombers. And sorry, only one, one of two. The other one is in the UK. So there's, I mean, these things used to fly all over Europe back in world war II. And now there are only two that I can actually, you know, are airborne or airworthy and just, it's a beautiful aircraft. And it, my grandfather loved this plane. My dad loves this plane and <laughs> it would fly over our house all the time we used to do test flights and the coolest thing is that you could be anywhere in Hamilton whether you're you're inside or doing whatever but the moment that you hear those Rolls Royce engines roaring everybody <laughs> would just stop and walk outside and look up and you'd see this oh this is gorgeous aircraft I mean it really is a privilege to see this thing fly because like I said only one of this is one of two in the entire world and by the way you can actually take flights in it I think it's like five thousand dollars a seat but if you want huh? You can take a flight in the in the wow. Lancaster. Anyway, so my dad again loves World War II, but also loves aircraft. And there's this incredible scene in Empire of the Sun for those who've seen it. It is the Cadillac of the Sky sequence. It's the bombing sequence where the uh, the Americans are bombing the 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 Japanese airfield, and uh, our main character Jim is is watching this and he's experiencing this. This experience of a lifetime, almost, almost something that would be a figment of his imagination. Uh, you know, watching his favorite airplane, the the P fifty one, just soar across his view and, and, and bomb these buildings, these huge, over exaggerated explosions, and it's a real magical sequence. And John Williams captures that absolutely perfectly with his music. It's uh, it's almost this reli- religioso. Piece. It has this very heavenly sound to it. It's not um, over the top, but it is still a very big, big uh, cue that has to convey these emotions for Jim because in the film, and this is a very interesting little factoid is that anytime you don't hear music in the movie, what we're experiencing is actually real life. However, when there is music playing What we're seeing it is through Jim's eyes. And it's the best thing about this movie and is the most misunderstood part of it is that some of the most extraordinary things that are happening, people are like, oh yeah, did that really happen? No, because we're looking at it through a child's eyes. And what do children do? They over-exaggerate everything. They over-exaggerate their stories. So that's why this Cadillac of the Sky sequence is so huge, so over the top, including where the pilot waves to Jim. And that's where Jim goes absolutely bananas. He's yelling, you know, P-51, Cadillac of the Skies. And John, John Williams' angelic music is just soaring above it all. And it's just one of the most magical things John Williams has ever written. So what I wanted to play... Is uh, a suite that John Williams put together. It contains three cues, but including that Cadillac at the Sky sequence. It's really the, the main theme of the of the film. And this was recorded with uh, the Boston Pops in 1990 for the first uh, Spielberg-Williams collaboration album. And uh, oh, okay. this is one of the, the first times I ever heard Empire of the Sun. And um, I actually used it in... <laughs> One of my uh, Indiana Jones fan films, which I call Indiana Jones and the City of God. So you can tell why I used it because of the kind of the religious aspects of the uh, of the piece. But yeah, anyway, that's a long story. But I I really wanted to dedicate uh, this one to my dad because Empire of the Sun is his uh, favorite movie.
0: That's uh, what an excellent story. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Let's let's have a listen to this. This is uh, from the film Empire of the Sun. It's a it's a suite, if you will, of several themes that we're going to call it Cadillac of the Skies. And it's, again, written by the, uh, the composer and maestro John Williams. i i must be honest with you eric we've i I, i've loved our conversation so much and i'm worried we're actually going kind of a little bit longer than i wanted to that's my fault entirely no 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 it's not i got you know look i could have cut you off it's fine but 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 here's my message for those of you that are patrons you're going to get to hear some more stuff because we're, we're we're going to we're going to play one or two more cues that eric has chosen and ask him a few more questions but uh, in the meantime, for our, our, our main audience, I am curious, and we, we we haven't really talked about it a lot. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing and and your program and how people can find it and you know and, and what's the what's the angle of your program, I guess, if you will, about film music.
1: Sure. Uh, the, the show's called Cinematic Sound Radio. Um, as I said, it began in 1996. It was on FM radio for for 10 years. I quit um, after my son was born so I could spend more time with my boy. Uh, but the, the show still stayed on uh, uh, streaming on on the Internet. And so I did shows like that for, for the longest time. And then in 2016, I turned it into a, a podcast. And then its evolution has been an, a surprise to me because I never expected it to go where it went. Um, and it's become more of a podcast network where I now have... 10 different shows that are being produced. <laughs> I have about seven or eight different hosts that are doing specially uh, specialized shows for, you know, video games or composer interviews, uh, horror music, uh, anime music, um, or deconstructing one film at a time. Um, so it, it's turned into this wonderful community, a family Uh, of just film music fans who, who love to present film music, talk about film music, celebrate film music. And I, again, I never thought that it would ever turn into this for, for the longest time I was on my own. I was doing a show a week and, but now I have help from a great group of friends who, uh, you know, do this, you know, because it's their passion and they want to do it. I mean, we got this guy, Jason Drury. Um, and I'm so proud of him because, uh, you know, he had a difficult life. He was, he was bullied as a, as a youngster and, and just had the lowest self-esteem, but he came to me with a great show, uh, that he produced that, uh, was dedicated to James Horner. He presented this three part. Uh, how long is it? About three hours just dedicated to the music and life of James Horner. Wow. And he was having issues with the online radio station that he was with. Um, Again, this guy was just being absolutely horrible, horrible to Jason. So he came to me and he said, do you mind if I put this on your network? And I said, sure, that's fine. I mean, I was interviewed for it and that's how I met Jason, but this is how I got Jason involved. And the best thing that has happened is that he's basically blossomed. He's opened up. He said this to me and he's getting to experience talking to some of his favorite film composers that he never thought he would ever have the chance of doing if it wasn't for the show. And that's the thing that makes me the happiest. Uh, It's not so much that, you know, I'm getting programming from Jason, but he's now, you know, exploring and doing things that he never got to, thought he'd get a chance to do i mean he just talked with bruce broughton which was one of his you know musical soundtrack heroes yeah and you know now he's he's doing articles for film score monthly you know he's doing a lot of these things that it's because of his association with cinematic sound and i mean i I don't like to pat myself on the back but that's one of those things that has happened that i'm just i'm ecstatic i'm just so happy You're proud of it there's no reason why you shouldn't be yeah yeah Yeah. So that's what we do. Um, It's a, like I said, it's a network of shows and I still do shows maybe once or two times a week, but um, I'm concentrating a lot on the, on the Patreon account. Um, You know, we do shows with them. So we start doing all request shows and we'll be talking to uh, fans of the Patreon and they get to come on and produce their own program with me. Um, So it depends what tier they're on. And that's an interesting side Aspect of it, and that's a whole other community of you know my supporters, my biggest supporters. That's cool. Just, that's you know, yeah. It's it's great, and, and and I hope people support you because I mean, I was wondering why do people want to give me money for for doing this? Like, why? But it's because they they want to hear me, they want to hear the music, they want to hear my personal stories, and I think that if anybody enjoys what Frank does here, and I think his shows are absolutely fantastic, I was been binging on them for the past three days. Thank you. I honestly think that. If you want more of this and you are really a big fan of this and you want to keep going, then I highly recommend just jumping on and sending them a few bucks because it it is important. And it it really does inspire uh, any one of us who are doing podcasts just to keep on going because, you know, the fans there that really do care. Yeah, look, I'm blown away by it.
0: Coming from someone like you that's been doing this for a while, that means a great deal to me. Thank you for that. I
1: appreciate it. Yeah, I learned a lot. And and you know, like hearing that uh the show with a, a fellow Hamiltonian the other day <laughs> uh, uh Dr. Lisa Fuller. I thought that was fantastic and she was excellent. I mean, you're bringing on people who, who I mean, she well, you said that she didn't um uh have any like musical knowledge or whatever, but I mean, she's explaining tracks like, "Oh yeah, you know, no, about, she she's like, a she seasoned was, pro." Yeah, she was terrific. She was, great. she was. she was you're right, she was terrific. There's a great show. I I love listening to all the programs. They were, were they're fantastic.
0: It's equally interesting and fascinating. I've been fortunate enough to get some composers to come on Mm -hmm. and, and actors and things like that. But, but people that have no connection to the industry per se, other than the fact that they're fans, uh, but, but but are very eloquent in explaining why they like this particular piece of music and what it does for them and that sort of thing. Far better than I could explain it. So I'm, I'm always impressed. Uh, Yeah. I know what you're saying. So, just to just to make sure that we're certain so how do people find your your uh, your network and your podcast exactly sure. give yeah. us some information on that
1: yeah it's at cinematicsound.net um or you can find us on twitter i hang out there a lot CIN sound radio or on facebook it's cinematic sound and uh, but if you type in cinematic sound radio on your favorite podcatcher you will find the show
0: okay and you usually you have like a new episode
1: goodness there there, there are so many there are so i'm I'm behind i am behind i am so far behind so am i (laughs) I i'm about seven in the in the archive right now so i'm trying to get like usually i get about two a week out um but if i'm too busy then i will uh i only get one um but again, I produce maybe one or two a month myself. But as I said, I have an army of film music fans doing stuff. Folks, doing I
0: got to tell you, it takes yeah. a lot of time and a lot of it effort does. to do that. So yes. appreciate the fact that he's putting out one a week. Is that's far better than I can do. So yeah, I, yeah. yeah, excellent. Um, look, Eric, I, I don't know. I don't even know where to begin. I, I I can't thank you enough for joining us. I've I've been an admirer of your work and your program, and uh, as you well know, we. Uh, Occasionally, we're on the same Zoom calls with other mm-hmm. film music aficionados, and and I'm, I'm always, you know, fascinated by your comments and how, your expertise on it. I, thank you again for joining us. I, I I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed being with you today.
1: Yeah, the pleasure was all mine, and thanks for letting me, uh, you know, blather on. I, I do it a lot. I like to talk <laughs> so
0: much, and no, uh, I think it's fascinating. I think our <laughs> listeners will love it.
1: I just want to make sure that I keep it but I I think a little bit, you know, within the range of under two hours, I guess. I I think the strength of your program is the personal story. And and I found that that's another interesting aspect of what I get from my fans is that they'd like to hear the personal stories behind why people pick the cues that they do or, or play the music that they do. And it's not just, you know, throwing a bunch of tracks on and saying, here you go. I I love hearing the personal stories. And I think that's what makes the, you know, any podcast uh, interesting. And so I think that, you know, you having guests, a wide range of guests on your program is so very interesting. And and, and that's, I think, how you get a real uh, a, a good chance to 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 know these people. To, they're very interesting people, a wide range of interesting people to bring on. But it's, it's the personal stories that are that are interesting. And I, and I thank you very much for letting me share them here on your show today.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. Uh, folks, that's uh, that's going to do it for us today. Again, I want to uh, thank our patrons who are supporting the program. We're going to have some extra cues that we'll hear and some extra comments from Eric here in a moment for those of you that are part of the patron program. You probably heard the uh, commercial in the middle. If you want to join us, please, please come on to patreon.com and look up What's the Score and uh, join us and try to support the program. We'd be grateful if you could do that. Um, other than that, I guess there's not much else to say other than this. That is... My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score?